Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Psalm number 16. Psalm 16, reading from the beginning. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the, sight, in, in the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, good evening. Last week I was down in York um, speaking at an event run by CU down there. And around tables, students and guests were asked, what is your ultimate goal in life? What would make your life a life well lived? Now, there were a variety of answers from around the room. Some were saying travel. They want to see the world. Others, it was to have a family. Some, to enjoy life to the full, living with no regrets. And the more sensible-headed said it was just to get a good degree and then get a good job after uni. But yet one of their greatest desires went unsaid, but evidence of it was all around. It was on posters in the campus. It was on all the messaging boards. This was a safe campus, and the uni wanted to let you know that you were in a safe campus. Subtly, all around was evidence of that ultimate desire, that desire of safety, that desire of security. And whether or not it's identified as a desire, our actions and our decisions, well, they can point to a longing for that security in our own lives. And it's understandable, isn't it? Ever since Genesis 3, ever since the fall, when sin entered and ravaged the world, we've lived in an unsafe world. We always have to look over our shoulder. And when we feel like our, our security, our safety is threatened, Well, we need to go and seek refuge. Intrinsically, it feels like part of the human experience. 
to be aware of threats and to seek refuge. Even from a young age, toddlers who fall over, who bump their knee, well, they go crying out from mummy and daddy to be held, to be cuddled, to be told that everything is going to be okay. And now it may not be bumped knees anymore for us, but there's many other things that threaten our security. Whether it's a problem at work, a problem that follows you home after 5 p.m. It could be the breakdown of a relationship which feels like it's on its last legs. It's on breaking, at that breaking point. It could be an ongoing chronic illness or the onset of a new one. And ultimately, all of these All of these threats point to the biggest threat of our security, the biggest threat of death. Now, in recent years, we've seen the measures that people will go to to feel safe, to stay safe, to avoid death in the COVID response. And even today, as we remember the millions of soldiers who went against that desire for safety, those who went and lost their lives in war, well, their sacrifice becomes even more impressive as we question, would I do that? Would I be willing to give up my security, my safety, even my life? And so when we come to tonight's passage, we are asking that question, where can I find refuge when there's so many threats to my security, so many threats to my safety? Well, here in Psalm 16, we have the answer. Because here in this psalm, David seeks and finds security. And here in Psalm 16, we too can seek refuge with the king. Now, where does David turn to seek, to search for that security? Well, verse 1, preserve me, O God. David turns, as he has in many other psalms, he turns to the Lord. He turns to him with a plea. But as we read through the psalm, we can see that it's unlike those other psalms where David's security is threatened here there are no dogs encompassing him here there's no crying out from the pit there's no on edge air of emergency no we're not given much detail we're not told of struggles we're not told of specific enemies he doesn't tell us what alarms him but rather he tells us what anchors him he doesn't share his sorrows but here he shares his joy Verse 1 again, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David is finding, seeking security and is finding refuge in the Lord. And we'll see that David is able to pray with full confidence that here in the Lord, that he has refuge, that he is and will be secure. And he commends it to us to join him in finding refuge with the king. We'll be looking at this psalm in four points. So if you want to take notes, the first point is the king's desires. The king's desires, verses 1 to 8. David is able to pray with such assurance because he is single-heartedly and utterly desiring God. It is in him that he is taking refuge. And look what he goes on to say in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Verse 2 serves as a headline. I say to the Lord, the capital L-O-R-D, all caps, Yahweh, 
That's God's personal covenantal name. He says, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. This time, it's not in all caps. This isn't the personal name of God, but rather his rank as covenant master. Basically saying, you're the boss. I say to Yahweh, you're the boss. My will is to obey your will. Right from the off, we see that David's confidence comes from having a relationship with the covenantal Lord. And that relationship is marked with willing obedience, a devotion, a devotion with a desire for God himself at the heart of it. And David is beginning then to list off the benefits of this covenantal relationship. In verse 2, I have no good apart from you. Here, not only devotion, but also delight. See, David has learned and realized that all good, all the blessings, all the joy that he seeks in this life can only be found in one place and one place alone. It can only be found in the Lord. He has no good other than the Lord, apart from the Lord. And he contrasts that with the joy. He contrasts this joy that is found in God and God alone with the misery of those who run after idols. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. In his commitment to the Lord, David says that he has nothing to do with idols or those who chase after them. Now, remember the context of Israel when the psalm was first written. It's easy for us to read this and think that who David is talking about as being those out there, as those who chase after the small g gods. And it's true. But David isn't talking about those out there. Rather, he is talking about Israelites, God's covenant people. In the Old Testament, we read, or we read that some Israelites would turn to and would sacrifice to other gods, a way to hedge their bets, a way to try to guarantee provision, whether it's fertility or the rain or harvest. They say, well, we've been told that God, we've been told that Yahweh, that he will provide for us, but we'll have a flutter with Baal just in case. Now, by our world standards, it makes sense. It makes sense not to put all your eggs in one basket. But by God's standard, it's absolutely detestable. Now, it's unlikely that we, are, that we here tonight are outperforming rituals involving drink offerings of blood. Hopefully, that's unlikely. But think of how we can so often fall into the same trap, running after the other gods, making idols in our lives. Idols that in themselves are most likely good gifts from God. But in our sin, we make them the ultimate. Money, a good career, a degree, a husband or wife, children, success, government party success, pleasures, even comfort and security. All good gifts, but all can be easily, so easily twisted. And so instead of delighting in God, instead of giving him thanks for these good gifts, instead of finding all of our goodness in him and in him alone, we so often run. Run and think that there's greater goodness elsewhere that these idols can offer. 
these things that promise a feast, but deliver a famine. Instead of receiving water that refreshes, they act as salt water, which leaves us thirsting even more. And so our desires become distorted. Instead of devoting ourselves to God, we perform sacrifices to these broken cisterns. It might not look like shedding blood and drinking it, but it might look like getting to the top of your department, no matter who you step on, or searching for a spouse with no consideration of whether or not they love Jesus. It might look like getting our kids in the best schools, no matter what it takes, giving them the best opportunities, even if it means we miss commitments to God and to his church and his people. It can even look like being so concerned with our own safety and security that we end up disobeying God because of fear of man, outweighing the fear of God. And it can be so easy to slip in to these things, slip into the race after these things, so easy that sometimes we might not even realize we're doing it until one day, one day we can wake up, the blinkers removed, and we see that our sorrows have multiplied and multiplied as we have turned away from God. To seek refuge in the Lord, to have him as your ultimate desire, well, that is the remedy. As your ultimate delight, have the Lord as your ultimate delight. And turn away from these idols. Turn away from the idols which promise so much but deliver so little. Because here in verse 2, we, we read that there's wonderful delight in the Lord. And it's not just found in him, but delight can also be found in his people. Now, what is your view of the people around you? The people sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you? It may be best not to answer that out loud. But it's a strange relationship that we have with one another. It's a relationship that is unlike any other in this world. The relationship brothers and sisters in Christ have within the church. If you were at last week's day conference with Dan Strange, we we heard about how the church is the ultimate and most wonderful witness to the world. How we, as a group of people from all different countries, all different stages of life, all different backgrounds and ethnicities and everything else that divides people here in the church. You can see it. It's the world's greatest apologetic. Deep friendships can be formed in the pews of a church that are often so closer, so much closer than the relationships between blood relatives. Relationships based not on something that's fleeting or passing, but relationships that are rooted and grounded in Christ and in Christ alone. Now, a few years ago, some Christian friends came to visit me in Northern Ireland. Um, We went around to my my granny's for supper one night, and it didn't take long for my family to see that these five English men and women were very different to me, and that's not just because they were English. They spoke in a very different way to the way that I spoke. They spoke about things like art and theatre. Words and phrases that had never been heard within those walls were suddenly uttered. Words like renaissance. (laughs) Phrases like this would really go well with some avocado. 
And when they left, my granny turned to me and she asked, where on earth do you meet these people? And the answer is church. The church is where we, I, meet the, I met these people. And the church is where we can meet all sorts of people. Because despite us not loving the same things, we all love Christ. Because we love Christ, we love each other. But yet despite knowing this, despite seeing glimpses of the church's wonderful witness, how often do we forget it? How often do we find ourselves frustrated with those around us? Now I'm sure I've frustrated some of you here this evening. And I know that I've not loved brothers and sisters in the way that I should have or could have. And it's so common to hear Christians throw each other, throw other churches, other Christians, under the bus. But see what David is saying here in verse 3. His delight is in those people. In the holy ones, the chesed, the ones who are part of this covenant relationship with God, he says, Lord, I want to associate with your holy people, the men and women who trust you, who love you, who honor you in their lives, regardless of what the world thinks about them. My delight is in them. Because a devoted and a delighted desire in the vertical relationship between us and God has to play out in the horizontal To love God, to love Yahweh, is to love his people. Yes, they'll mess up. Yes, we'll all mess up. The Bible is very realistic when it says that the saints in God's church, in God's kingdom, well, they don't always act saintly. That doesn't let us off the hook. If Yahweh is your Lord, verse 2, well, you will prize his people, verse 3. Otherwise, something, something has gone wrong. And when thinking of seeking refuge when security is threatened, what does that so often look like practically in our lives? Well, I imagine for most of us it looks like God using the church family that he has put around us to bring wonderful comfort, a well-timed message or phone call, a meal brought around to the door, being welcomed into homes when you felt homeless, receiving hugs, that feel like you're in the safe protection of a small army. Brothers and sisters, never take for granted the blessing, the comfort, the joy that can be found in a church family. Next, we'll see that David, in verses 5 and 6, is content. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What we read here is the language of the promised land. The words portion, cup, lot, boundary lines, and inheritance, well, they all echo the language used in Joshua's day in the distribution of the promised land. Now, David could be speaking about a physical land with physical lots, the inheritance of Israel that he may be fighting and straining for. But I think it's more likely that David is referencing something else. Because in the time of Joshua, in the book of Joshua, we read that each tribe was given a portion of land, a portion of land that was bounded by lines. They received an inheritance to keep. But there was one exception. The Levites, 
the tribe of the priests. They did not receive land. They did not receive a physical inheritance, but rather they were told that the Lord was their portion. And here, I think David is content with that inheritance, that portion for himself, that his desire is the Lord and the Lord alone. And so he uses this language of this priestly tribe and he has real contentment in that. He has the contentment that Israel, the nation that was to be a kingdom of priests, were to have but so often failed. Here, their king is happy, more than happy, overjoyed to have his portion, his inheritance as the Lord. In verse 7, we then read that he is being directed by God. So I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. In his desires to know God intimately, David is saying that he is being directed by him. His counsel is given to him. In the night his heart or his kidneys instruct him. Here, David is showing glimpses of that blessed man that we read in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, which acts as a gatekeeper to the Psalter. Here is one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but rather meditates on God's word night and day. And so with all that's being said, the king's desires are being summed up here in verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. I have set the Lord always before me. King David desires security, yes, But his confidence for that security, well, it's rooted in his ultimate desire. His ultimate desire that he wants the Lord alone. And his pure desire determines his destiny. That's our second point. The king's destiny, verses 8 to 11. As I said earlier, the ultimate threat to security in this life is the issue of death. And that's what David has in view But even with that in view, he has a real confidence. A confidence that he will not be shaken. In verse 8, he has the Lord not only before him, but beside him, at his right hand. Language of help in court or in battle. David is saying that someone so single-hearted in their desire for God, so unshakably moved in their desire to have God and God alone, well, can't be shaken, not even in the face of death. And look at the results of that. In verse 8, as I was reading through it, the line, God save the king, the king who is not going to be shaken even when death comes knocking. Well, if verse 8 is God save the king, then verses 9 and 11 represent the king being sent victorious, happy, and glorious. Because what a wonderful, joyful praise to be able to lift up. Hopefully when you were singing these words, you felt the the jubilant weight as we sang these words together, as we lifted them up. It begins with a therefore. A therefore in direct response to having Lord at my right hand. Therefore my heart is glad. Every ounce of my being rejoices. And this security that I have received in the Lord means that even my physical being is covered. Nothing can shake me. In verse 10, he unpacks this even more. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol, the 
the, where the Jewish, Jewish faith believed people went after death, the grave with a capital G. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One, God's anointed king, see corruption. Here is David's ultimate security. A physical life that won't see the grave or corruption and instead leaves him with immense joy. Victory over the grave. Now look in verse 11 that this wonderful, joyful verse that you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The joy does not come from just escaping death. The joy does not come from just having eternal life, but rather that joy is rooted and grounded in who that eternal life will be spent with. It will be spent with God, David's greatest desire. David set Yahweh before him, and with God at his right hand, he will not be shaken. In verse 8, God is at his right hand, But here in verse 11, David is at God's right hand. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. King David's desires determines his destiny. And so as we seek, we seek that same destiny, we do so by finding refuge in the same place that David found refuge, with God. Now, there's an elephant in the room, isn't there? There's a big dilemma Because as we read this, we feel uncomfortable. We feel uneasy. Because I don't look like this. And I suspect you don't either. We're left questioning, are my desires this pure, this focused? Can I really say that my desire for God has been unwavering? Well, if you're a visitor here tonight or not a Christian... And you've been under the impression that this describes each person who goes to this church. Well, let me tell you now that it doesn't. Our desires waver a lot. They're mixed. Often our desires are compromised. And it gets even more cloudy when we think, well, I can't sing it, but David's singing it. It must be true of him. Well, if you've been here in the mornings of the last couple of months, reading of David's life in 2 Samuel, Well, you know that he so often fell short of this. And we haven't even gotten on to Bathsheba yet. And so, when left with threats to our security, when face to face with that ultimate threat to our security, death, we're left asking, well, is there a refuge or not? Is it possible to be secure? Is it possible to have a hope that stands up to death and coals right through. Well, Psalm 16 says that, that the ultimate refuge and the joy that comes with it is possible, but it's possible for those who have pure desires. And the litmus test to see whether someone has those true desires, pure, untainted, unwavering desires, is death. Verse 10 For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And when we look at that test, we see that, again, we are in a bit of a bother because none of us will pass it. Death is still very much in our plans in this life. And then we get to King David. 
And oh no, he's dead as well. His body did see corruption. He was buried. And so we're left with a big dilemma. A big dilemma, but there's a wonderful answer. Wonderful good news, because this is not the last time Psalm 16 is referenced in the Bible. Keep a finger in Psalm 16 and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, reading from verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might, may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verses 8 and 11, Psalm 16 quoted here by Peter, and he goes on to say, verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so, here's our final point. King Jesus delivers. King Jesus delivers. Because as we just read in Acts 2, Peter reads these verses in Psalm 16. And he says, Yes, this is not true of David, But there is one king of which it is true. Here is the one who had true refuge in the Lord. Here is the one who can sing Psalm 16 fully and perfectly. And how do we know? Well, because he was not abandoned in death, but rose victorious. Peter says that King David wasn't speaking about himself here in Psalm 16. He knows this because David is dead. He's as dead as dead can be, and his tomb is right over there. But in fact, he says that David knew that he was dying. David knew that he wasn't going to be the king on the throne forever, but rather one of his descendants would be, as God promised him. But here is the Christ. Here is that king. Here is the greater son of David, the greater Messiah, the perfect and full Christ, who, although he died, was not abandoned, And although he died, he lives this day. I think we get a glimpse of that in Psalm 16. Look at the use of the my language throughout the psalm. My Lord, my delight, my lips, my chosen portion, my cup, my lot, my right hand, my heart, my whole being, my flesh, my soul. A lot of my's. And then suddenly in verse 10, your holy one will never see corruption. What was partly true of David is fully true of Jesus. Like so many times when we read of David in the Old Testament, we see the ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament, in Jesus, in his Son. The capital C, Christ, the capital M, Messiah, God's chosen and anointed King. Now Psalm 16 is also quoted by Paul in Acts 13. 
um, also as a defense for the resurrection of Jesus. And that's an important thing to defend. Without the resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we as Christians should be pitied above all others. But because Jesus has rose from the grave, we can have wonderful, wonderful assurance that he defeated death through his death. That he rose victorious from the grave to prove that he has. To prove that he has secured eternal life and he offers it to all who believe in him. In John's Gospel we read that Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so that's the question we're faced and confronted with. Do we believe this? Hopefully the answer is yes. Because the tomb is still empty. And because the tomb is still empty, there is still, there is wonderful, wonderful hope in this life. Hope that stands up to death. Hope that comes away victorious. And as Jesus was raised from the grave, we read that he is only the first fruits. That a wonderful physical resurrection awaits all who follow and trust in this king. Now, although Paul and Peter use verse 10 to defend the resurrection, I think we need to be careful that we don't just treat Psalm 16 as an apologetic. It's not that the apostles just pulled Jesus out of the psalm like a rabbit out of a top hat. But rather, all of the psalm is about David. It's not the case that we read and we see, oh, that's about David, and that's still about David. And then, boom, verse 10, oh, Jesus. No, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that we read of in Psalm 16, the one who is able to sing these words, pray these words, without any hint of irony or hypocrisy. He is the one who had a perfect devotion and obedience to God. He is the one who experiences every blessing and joy in God alone. He is the one who fully delights in God and his holy people. He is the one who never fluttered with any other god or idol. The one who had true and full contentment in what the Lord has given him. The one who looks at us as his beautiful inheritance. He is the one who always sought and kept the counsel of his father. Who always has his eyes fixed on the Lord. And it's been proved that he is the one. The one who has not seen corruption or been abandoned to the grave. And he is the one who has this incredible joy that we read throughout the psalm. And so Jesus invites us to pray and to sing the psalm, to share in all of those wonderful things as our own through him. Because we read this and we say, well, I can't sing this. I feel like a hypocrite. I know I'm not the anointed one. I'm not the king. I'm here without the promises that David enjoyed. And I'm also here without the perfect obedience that Jesus kept. But when we get to these Psalms, Jesus says, you can pray these as your own. You can claim these promises for yourself. And you can share in that joy. Because I am with you. He invites us to share in in this with him. 
in our unity with Christ, what wonderful, wonderful assurance, comfort, security, confidence can we have from the psalm. And so finally, what might our response to Psalm 16 look like? Well, first of all, our response should look like loving the king. Loving the king. Tonight we've been talking about where to find refuge when security feels threatened. And the answer is not so much in finding refuge with the king, but rather finding refuge in the king. In King Jesus. Jesus who died and who rose and he made you in his resurrection one of his younger siblings. In his death and resurrection he made you one of his younger siblings. And so verse 3, if you're a follower of this king, if you know him, if you desire him above all else, then this is true. You are his delight. Here is our advocate, our solid rock, when faced with every threat to our security, every threat to our safety. Here is one that stands up to death and has come through victorious. Here is a God, a king, who is worthy of all of our love and praise. So love the king. Secondly, desire the king. Maybe through reading the psalm tonight, you, you, you had a sense of envy. As you read this, thinking, I wish I was like that. I really want to be like this. More than anything else, I want to desire God in this way. Well, brothers and sisters, trust that the spirit, that God's spirit is making you more like this king day upon day. Ultimately, the spirit of Jesus works in our hearts. He is working. And as he does, he reconfigures our deepest desires. It may never be perfect in this life, but a desire to know God, to delight in him, to learn contentment in God, to believe that blessing is only to be found in God, to long to obey God. These things well up in our hearts as the spirit of God is at work. And therefore, we keep singing songs like the one we sang, Be Thou My Vision, because as we know, we often feel we need to keep coming back, making this our prayer, time after time. But yet there's hope, because we know it's possible to have the same desires as we read in Psalm 16. Paul in Philippians is able to say, but whatever gain I had, I, whatever gain I, had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It is possible to have the same desires as Psalm 16, as the king in Psalm 16. So keep desiring that king. Keep desiring King Jesus. And finally, enjoy the king. Enjoy the king. This psalm is not just about Jesus' resurrection, but mainly it's about Jesus' joy. A joy that is rooted and grounded and only made possible through the resurrection, but about joy. And in a world where we can so often feel beaten down, here, by looking and desiring and delighting in God, we are told that true joy is an offer. Now this True joy doesn't mean the absence, of sor- the absence of sorrows and suffering. Just look at the life of David, David, who originally wrote the psalm. 
He experienced real trial time after time after time. And what about Jesus? Well, what was his cup? Well, it wasn't delightful. It was the wrath of God. But no, to enjoy this king doesn't mean the absence of sorrow. Nor does it mean that we always need to be happy or smiling ear to ear 24-7. But rather to humbly and joyfully trust in the Lord. To strive after his king. To live under his rule. And allowing him to become our deepest longing and our greatest desire. Now you may be in a position tonight where that joy feels a lifetime away. And if you don't feel like that tonight, well, it's likely that at some point you will. Sin is all around, and it has ravaged the world. And so when we are in those moments, whether now or a time in the future, here is a psalm for those moments that in our cries for protection, in our cries for security, we can have real Real confidence, real hope, and, and real wonderful joy because of our God and our King. Our joy is as full as Jesus' grave is empty. His resurrection changes everything as we look forward to a time when we too can say that our bodies will not see corruption And our joy will not come just from the fact of eternal life, but because of who that eternal life will be spent with, in communion with this wonderful God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're good. You're wonderful. And Father, we thank you that we, through Jesus, can say, All of these things in Psalm 16. Father, we realize that us and ourselves, we don't often feel like we can say these words. We too often go astray. We too often chase after idols of this world. Lord, we pray that you would reconfigure our desires, set our hearts, our eyes, our focus, our longings to you. Father, we pray that you would help us to to always be turning to you when threatened, when anxious, when worried, when hope seems so weak and so weary. Lord, we pray that you would bring us back to you and let us see that in your Son, the one who is fulfilled the one who prays the psalm, who sings the psalm, and who invites us to sing it with him, that in him we have real hope through his resurrection. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us, hold us fast, until we can say, sing and know the realities of verse 11 for ourselves, that you have made known to us the path of life, that as we are in your presence fullness, And fully, we will experience that fullness of joy. That at your right hand, we will experience these pleasures forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's continue our worship this evening by responding in in sung praise. Um, There is a hope that burns within my heart.
that gives me strength for every passing day.